Good Father's Day Sunday morning. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is uh, it is actually, as I record this podcast, Father's Day morning. It is Sunday, a little after 6 a.m. It's a beautiful morning. It's warm. The sun is out. I uh, have a cup of coffee in my hand, and I'm sitting out in the front yard. And yesterday, my wife asked me, and what do you want to do for Father's Day? And I, I literally told her this. I go, look, it's it's going to be nice. Uh, you know, I wake up early. I would just love to go out in the front yard in the morning, sit down, and uh, and and I told her I could. You know, I got to do my podcast. Haven't haven't done. I've done half of it. The the this podcast can be about a half hour of uh, ask me anything. If it even goes a half hour, I don't know. I printed out a few pages worth of questions here. I, I'll explain why I had to print in a second. but And then I've got about a half hour interview in the can with Red Osier, like the Red Osier, which I think is so cool. And I'll explain how that came to be too. But I told her, I go, this is all I want for my Father's Day. I want to go out front. I want to uh, drink a cup of coffee, record my podcast. I'll come in. I'll upload the podcast. And then I'll start making sauce. You know, and she says, you want to make sauce? I'm like, yeah, I want to make sauce. For some reason, everyone's flabbergasted by the fact that I still want to make sauce now that I make sauce literally every day of my life. But Sundays is my one chance to make sauce like the old way, you know, with like my tomatoes and, you know, basil from my garden. And, and, and it's still, it's it's something I still want to do. Something that I, uh, I don't want to give up that, you know, the, the root of the whole thing. So anyway, so yeah, that's how I start my Father's Day out front talking uh, podcast. And I did. I did, you know, if you've tuned into all these episodes, I talked about how I wanted to do this Ask Me Anything episode, like my second or third episode out, and I didn't want to lose the concept. I had a lot of people say, oh, I've got questions I would love for you to answer, and I felt like if it goes much longer before I do it, some of this stuff will be irrelevant, and, uh, you know, talking it all about radio, and that's what people have questions about a lot about radio, and talking it all about radio you know, eventually, and probably even already, is just going to start to sound like, ugh, like, like, like this guy, like, come on, man, get, you know, leave it be, you've been gone for a long time, and, and yeah, you're right, absolutely, and, and move on, and, uh, I, and I'll tell you, I have moved on, that doesn't mean I don't have opinions and things, but, um, in fact, one of the first questions for the Ask Me Anything was, do you regret leaving radio, and uh, I, I'll be as honest with you as I've been with anybody in fact this podcast you'll see the next half hour or so i plan on being overly honest about many things uh personal professional etc but um when i first left i had a i thought i knew exactly what was going to happen regarding regretting leaving radio i thought that ultimately i wouldn't regret it um but i thought that maybe i would miss it a little bit okay i thought that for sure like i was like okay I know what I'm doing is the right thing. I've been thinking about this for well over a year. Every morning I've woke up for over a year and asked myself, would life be better if I did this thing where I took my job, which was radio, and my hobby, which was sauce, and I flipped the two? Would life be better? And every day for a year I was able to answer to myself, yes, that's the life I wish I was living. So I knew I wasn't going to regret it. I did think I'd miss it, but I knew that making radio my hobby, doing this podcast, would give me the fix I needed. So I thought I had a good plan. Um, when it actually happened, I um, 
couldn't believe it. And to this day, I guess it's been, what, six, seven weeks. To this day, I, I have not regretted even for a moment. And I haven't missed it even for a moment. Um, I've been interested in things that are going on when the whole Kimberly and Beck thing, that definitely sparked my interest. You know, I'm not going to lie. I, I was that day at work, I was like checking social media and, you know, I was, I was, I was all wrapped up in it like you were, you know, I was interested. So, um, I still have interest in the industry and I still love doing a podcast. I'm just not actually paying attention or regretful or anything like that. So, Regret, no. Miss it, no. Not yet, at least. Um, but doing the podcast, I think, is helping that. You know, I, I think if I wasn't doing the podcast, I might eventually miss doing something to do with radio. But uh, but hey, that's on me. You know, I'm the one that quits, so it's my fault. Um, I'm just going to roll through these. It's been a tough week. I have these printed out, these questions, literally printed out, and I'll explain why. Because I had a tough week. Like, professionally, this was one of the hardest weeks of my life. Let me explain why. Because I had obstacles thrown in my way every day that were not your typical obstacles. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, like, Polly, we all have obstacles every day. And you're thinking, Polly, you're the boss. Now, you're you're going to have obstacles every day. It's your main job is to put out fires. No. Listen to the size of these fires. So Monday, we had a pump break, and it's a pump we use to get product out of those 55-gallon barrels. And, you know, the product that we needed specifically was uh, Red Hot. It's this product. You would know it as Frank's Red Hot, but we actually use something called Bulliard, which is a similar product. And it's, um, yeah, look it up, B-U-L-L-I-A-R-D. It's a great uh, cayenne pepper sauce, red pepper sauce, just like Frank's Red Hot. And uh, we use a ton of it in all the different meats and hot sauces and a lot of the barbecue sauces we make, we use that stuff. And it broke Monday. First thing Monday morning, the pump we used broke. The backup didn't work because it had been a backup, you know. It was like getting rust in some room for who knows how many years. So the very first thing that happens Monday morning is I find out I got to go buy these pumps. (sighs) Okay, Tuesday morning. That wasn't even that big of a deal. That was like the small one. That was just setting me up for the week. Tuesday morning, and you'll find out these all happen first thing in the morning. That's the other thing. Yesterday, Saturday, I was like dodging bullets thinking, is, is something going to happen today? Because Tuesday I woke up to find out that one of our kettles had gone down. Now, in case you don't know about the business I'm in now, kettles are a little bit important to being able to make product. So we found out... On Tuesday, we were down a kettle, which is truly borderline catastrophic because now we cannot make as much product as we need to. We're going to miss out on our goals. We're going to miss out on orders. It's a nightmare, right? Wednesday morning, I find out that this product we're about to run has a bunch of mistakes on the label. And not only can we not run the product because the label isn't correct, But we have to inform the owner of the product that their label has some mistakes on it. They're not going to be happy because now they got to throw away thousands of labels and get new ones printed right away, and they can't have product in hand until they do. (laughs) Thursday, this was a small one, Thursday morning, and at this point, it's a joke. Like, at this point, I'm telling my wife every day. Yeah, I'm telling the guys, even the guys at work. I'm like, what? like, what, what is it about this week that first thing in the morning, something has to jump in the way and be like, hi, I'm a major problem. Deal with me today. 
Thursday, and this was the most minor of all, but still, nonetheless, Thursday, the pH meter stops working. This is the thing we use to measure acidity. Now, this is vitally important. You cannot put product out without knowing that the acidity is within a safe range. That's the pH value of a product. That's, you know, under 4.2 is the magic number for most products. And you have to measure that with a professionally calibrated pH meter or you just flat out can't put the product out. So then we deal with that on Thursday. But here's the good thing about Thursday. It turned out to be the most minor because for about 10 minutes, we had a panic situation on our hands and then finally realized it needed batteries. So that was the kid. So Thursday was like, okay. So we skated there. Friday morning, I wake up and I'm at home and my wife and child are awake and I'm just about to leave for work. Excuse me while I take a sip of coffee. And on Friday, as I'm about to leave for work, my phone starts like blinking or I don't know, it, the, the screen starts going on the fritz. And my wife says, what is that? And I, and I look at it and I go, I don't know, that's weird. And I start pressing buttons and it just goes black. Come to find out, the, for, the phone is still working, but the screen is broken. So basically, I'm in the car, you call me, the Bluetooth works, I can take your call, but the screen doesn't work. I can't see anything. No texts, no nothing. And, you know, it's 2020, and I'm a businessman in 2020, and I'm doing a ton of the business that I'm doing every day through my phone. And so this sucks. This is borderline catastrophic in terms of being able to do business. And plus, I'm a person like anyone else. I'm a millennial. I need my phone, right? I have a mild addiction to my phone, just like everyone else does. And so now I'm freaking out about that. I And then that's a whole nother thing. So then I go to the Verizon store. The Verizon store tells me I got to call customer service. Customer service leaves me on hold for an hour and a half. Then the next day I go back to the Verizon store and I say, I'm not doing customer service. That, that takes forever. Can you help me? They finally tell me, yes, we can get you a brand new phone because you have this insurance coverage. You bought the Verizon all access, whatever the hell. So, yes, we're going to replace your phone. We just need to switch off, find my iPhone. Go on your phone and turn off, find my iPhone. I go, well, I can't go on my phone. Oh, that's going to be a problem. Well, log into your iCloud. Okay, log into my iCloud. Uh, Two-factor authentication. Just go ahead and type in the number that came up on your phone. No, dude, my phone doesn't work. I can't. Oh, boy, that's going to be a problem. You're going to have to call Verizon Customer Service. Two hours. Now we're into yesterday. Two hours on the phone with Verizon Customer Service. It ended with them saying, okay, so the changes we took, we, we just made, should take effect in 24 hours. So we just need you to call back Verizon Customer Service in 24 hours, and we'll be able to ship you out a new phone. You should have it on Tuesday. I'm going, Jesus, God, like what a pain in the ass. I mean, God, your phone breaks, the screen breaks, no fault of yours, even at the Verizon store, you know, they're, they're looking at my phone, they're trying desperately to find damage so they can get out of having to pay for this phone since I've got this total coverage, whatever. And of course, they can't find anything, there's no mistakes. Uh, you know, they, they, they eventually tell me, yes, we owe you a free phone, and then they've just made it an absolute nightmare to get it, so... All right, let's get into the Ask Me Anything. How are we doing on time? 11 minutes? All right, I think we can do this in 20 minutes because I, I know the interview with Red is about a half hour, and I'd like for the episode to be a half hour. So I'm going to go right in order. I've got all the Facebook questions, all the Twitter questions, and then I wrote down what I could remember of the text questions because, remember, the uh, the text I can't exactly read, but some people were texting me questions, and I'm, I'm if you had texted me a question, then I apologize because I think I'm not going to be able to get to you. 
uh, because uh, I literally cannot see your text message. But here we go. Uh, number qu- question number one, Scott Bryant, when will the Indians win the World Series? Wow, we're coming right out with the hard hitters, aren't we? Um, never, sir. They are cursed. 2016 was the example, I would say, of Cleveland sports being as cursed as possible because the Cleveland Cavaliers, win. don't forget, they win the NBA championship in 2016. 2016 was supposed to be Cleveland's coming out year where the Cavs win the Indians win, and the Browns, well, let's not talk about the Browns in 2016, but 2016 Cavs win. Indians are looking like they could win the World Series. Don't forget, Game 7 of the World Series is in Cleveland against the Chicago Cubs. The Indians in the bottom of the eighth, Rajay Davis hits a home run, ties the game for the Indians. All the momentum is on Cleveland's side. The Cubs come up at the top of the ninth inning. They go out one, two, three. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. Here come the Indians. All the momentum in the world. A stadium behind them is just rocking, ready to have them win the World Series in the bottom of the ninth. Game seven, and God intervenes. And God goes, "Uh uh-uh, not you, Cleveland, sorry. And the skies open up, pours rain, rain delay, all momentum lost. Game resumes an hour later. Cubs win the World Series cursed will the indians ever win the world series no think about it 95 97 2016 every time they get to the world series some sort of clusterfuck happens and they end up losing 90 what was the 95 or 97 i can't keep the two straight but 95 or 97 one of them they lose to the braves the braves who in the 90s went to the world series like every year never won ever except for the year they played the one team more cursed than them and that was the indians then the other year they play against the florida marlins i think that's the one where they were up weren't they up in the ninth inning there also in like game six ready to clinch the world series and then something happened the ball went off jose mesa's leg or something like that oh god Yeah, I told you, we're starting off with the heavy hitters. Next question is from Adrian the Wass. Why, when you leave radio, voluntarily like you, or forced like Billy, do the remaining hosts have literally zero mention of their previous on-air coworkers? For example, the Wheeze and Billy connection, stories, memories, etc. I think Wheeze did mention Billy. I don't think I was in the room when it happened, because at that point I was banished to only working on the Wheeze show for like an hour a day, but... Um, I'm pretty sure Weeze did do a little Billy thing. Uh, you know, I think where he said, like, yeah, it wasn't my call. It was management's call. I love Billy. Billy's my man. So he did eventually do that. I don't know about with me why it never got mentioned. I, I mean, nobody ever – first, I don't know. I, I think I just pissed some people off there, quite frankly. I don't know if it was – the way I went out or um, over the years I pissed people off. But for some reason, you know, there weren't a lot of people, I think, that were rooting for me within those walls. And uh, and so I think that, you know, there was maybe a combination of happiness that I was gone and also maybe a little bit of just, like, anger and jealousy that, like, that I was on to something bigger and better. I don't really, to tell you the truth, I don't know. I'm putting words in people's mouths and emotions in their hearts, so I don't really know exactly why. I do know a little bit about why, in general, these things don't tend to get mentioned. And that does go all the way to the top. That is a management thing. They don't like to address personnel changes on the air. Uh, You know, why? Because I think they believe, (laughs) I know they believe listeners are stupid, they think that uh, they don't realize how smart listeners are, and they don't realize that the intelligence of listeners deserves to be. Uh, that, that I think they're. Hold on a second. I'm sitting under a tree, and all of a sudden, all these little things are falling on me. I think there is a squirrel directly above me, dropping like, "Hey, get out of there!" 
Go. Go, go, go. Sorry. There's a squirrel like 15 feet above me dropping like little wooden pellets on me right now. I can see where they're like chewing through the... I don't know if it's a squirrel or what the hell it is. They're chewing through the wood and it's falling right down on me. Um, anyway, no, I, I think that there's like this this thought that, hey, if we don't mention it, then we don't give the listeners anything to, to talk about. So we'll just hide the fact that this is happening. I've been in the room before where... Um, you know, the idea that we were making some changes and I think I said I, that I thought that listeners, we should just address it on the air. Even if we just address it one time, it should be addressed. You know, there has to be continuity. I've always been a fan of continuity. So if somebody leaves the show, there should be mention of that person is no longer with us. And even if that has to be quick and short and you never know, I mean, people have left the show for a million different reasons, all the way from the ugliest of the ugly to the prettiest of the pretty reasons. And so, um, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I wish it was addressed every time. I think it's odd that it's not addressed every time. And uh, I think that that directive comes from above the sort of the, you know, don't don't feed the listeners any more than they need to be fed in terms of, you know, the behind the scenes drama. Uh, Mike Champion Champ says, Dear Polly, please tell us a story of your love of backyard wrestling and how that led into you becoming the David Arquette of Western New York Independent Wrestling two years ago. Any fond memories? What did you learn? Who helped you along? Would you ever return or is it, as they say, in the business, a never-say-never thing? I would say it's a never-say-never thing, Champ. I would return. I just I have to find the time and the willingness because the, here's the thing people don't realize about pro wrestling. Uh, is it fake? No. It's planned, but you're still getting the crap kicked out of you. And I took a couple of shots. Not that that's what would hold me back, but I loved it, man. I got to go out to that Brockport Elks Lodge a couple times and be part of this little IWF. And, uh, you know, half the guys were super happy I was there. The other half the guys were like, who the hell is this guy? He's got no training. And all of a sudden, half the show is based on this guy. It was, you know, it was sort of uh, embarrassing, but also a lot of fun. And uh, they ended up putting the tag team titles on me, me and Dewey Murray who congratulations to him. He's getting married in the very near future. Uh, I love doing it. Who helped me out? Dewey helped me a lot. Poor Dewey. You know, Dewey's like a guy who's been doing it for years and years, and he gets stuck with the big dumb radio guy, and he's got to kind of carry me. Also, the guys I was in the ring with, and forgive me, I don't remember their names, but they were very communicative to me. They told me what to do all the time, constantly reminding me of what was coming up next. The one match that I was really a part of actually had uh, – was very heavily scripted, like almost every move was scripted, and so there was a lot of, you know, trying to memorize a script, like you were in a play, and those guys helped me a lot. And then Champ also himself, the guy asked this question, helped me. We had a situation once where it was, uh, I was supposed to interfere in a match of his, but what happened was, he was the manager of this other match, and in this other match, somebody got hurt, they got dropped on their head, and so Champ kind of had to panic and, and kind of break character and change what was going to happen in the script because he thought that somebody in the match had gotten legitimately hurt. And so he ran to the back to kind of get me, to taunt me, to get me to come out to the ring and, you know, ch change basically the script on the spot. So the very first thing I ever had to do in IWF was ad lib, which was great. That's what I was used to coming from radio. Um, John Strong says, if you weren't forced into working with Kimberly and Beck, would you still be on the radio? <clears throat> um, no. Kimberly and Beck 
themselves didn't really have anything to do with me leaving radio. People have asked me this a lot. A lot of people saw that. And I was, to be honest with you, not, and again, I've not in a million years want to defend Kimberly and Beck, but um, I was a little bit worried people would see that I had become Kimberly and Beck's producer and suddenly three months later I quit a 15-year radio career. That wasn't exactly how it happened. Excuse me, it's tough to drink the coffee. you got to find spots to drink the coffee. Um, no, what really happened was... Um, it had a little bit to do with it, but it wasn't exactly Kimberly and Beck. So like, I just found their show kind of boring, but I didn't have this overly angry hatred for it the way some people do. I just, I just had an indifference towards it. You know, I didn't, I didn't really like it a lot. Believe it or not, there was something about it I respected. I liked their pace of work. They work fast and I liked that. The Wii show's a lot more leisurely. It's a lot... It's a lot more what you picture radio to be. Radio's a lot... And I think people like this about the Wii Show. Everyone kind of sitting around shooting the shit, right? Kimberly and Beck was a lot more of a fast-paced, moving, moving, moving show. And and from that standpoint, I liked it at when I worked on it and became my job because I wanted that fast pace. That's sort of my style. But, uh, but the actual content of the show, I just found boring for the most part. Um, you know, they would, they would find these, like stories from Wayne County and spend two hours talking about them and it would be some girl who I don't know took a tire iron to her her boyfriend's car window because he cheated on her and they would just spend two and a half hours talking about that story interviewing a friend of a friend you know they'd interview like the neighbor of the guy who had the tire iron in his garage that she took to bash in this other guy's window and I would be like what this is a stretch. Anyway, uh, I I I did not quit because they made me Kimberly and Beck's producer. I did quit because they had. Uh, I I shouldn't say I did quit because because the truth is I didn't. There was a, there was a combination of enchantment with the food and sauce business and disenchantment with the radio business. I, I should. I should clarify that. It wasn't that I got pissed off at radio and decided to quit. It was that I was really having success and loving what was happening on the food sauce size of my business. At the same time, I'm looking at the other side of this radio thing and I'm going, I'm not loving what's happening here. So the two things happening simultaneously was really what made me quit. Um, if, oh, if, if sauce hadn't been going well and radio hadn't been going well, I don't know if I'd still be in radio. Maybe I would. But uh, what really happened was I just felt in several occasions like I had been lied to um, by by my bosses about opportunities. Uh, I felt as though I had very clear, and I won't even get all that detailed here because, you know, I don't want to per- be perceived as a whiner or anything like that. But I just been, been in several situations now where I had been told, you know, by my superiors that a situation was heading in a certain direction only to find out that it wasn't uh and that i was i just felt like i was being told anything they thought i wanted to hear in order to get me to shut up and go along with the program that they needed me to do and it became never became more apparent than when uh they did all those layoffs back in january and in january uh i i survived the layoffs but then i was told you know what my new job description would be and i had basically no say in it and i was asked what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I guess the story is, I I don't know if I should tell it or not. I feel bad, but, um, 
you know, because I, I do think we're talking about all good people here. It's just, you know, I was a, I was a, a cog in the wheel. They needed, they needed this thing to run smoothly. And I was a guy they needed to do a certain thing. I had a certain skill set, and it didn't matter to them that I didn't want to do that thing. They needed a guy to do that thing. And so what happened was right after the layoffs, they asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, at the time, remember I was doing mornings on mix and, uh, I just said, Hey, let me keep doing mornings on mix. And they said, no, sorry, that job has been eliminated. That's part of the layoffs is that we don't, you know, we're, we're not going to have that. That job doesn't exist anymore. Mornings on Mix will be some nationally syndicated radio now. I said, oh, that's a bummer. Then I'll go back to the Wii show. And they said, no, you know, we don't, we don't see that for you. We think Kimberly and Beck, we think that's where your future is. We think you should be on Kimberly and Beck. And then there was some talk about, you know, I was going to still be on Wii's a little bit because I had endorsements. I think the original plan was... The way it was originally pitched to me, I was going to come in at like 7.30 in the morning, write the news for the Wii Show, then do the news on the Wii Show at like 8, be on the Wii Show till 10, do a bunch of production stuff in the middle of the day, and then be on with Kimberly and Beck from like 2 o'clock on, or 2 o'clock until 3.30 or 4 o'clock, something like that. I, at this point, I don't even remember. But, um, but you know, that, that was what I was told, and, and I really didn't want to do that, and I expressed that I didn't want to do that, and it just kind of boiled down to them saying, well... Hey, buddy, that's what you're doing. So, and that was maybe the straw that broke the camel's back. That was maybe where I said, oh boy, you know, these guys don't even realize that I'm on the brink of leaving here. They've, then they've just pushed me over the brink, right? That was probably, so it was, you know, a big combination of things. Uh, John Oaks, why is Baker Mayfield not Tim Couch 2.0? Oh, yeah, go Steelers. Screw you, John. Paul Harris, do you know why Antonette is closed? No, I don't. I am friends with Matt Petrillo. I don't know exactly why Antonette is closed. I know the meatball truck is having a ton of success, and I think they've even expanded. I think they've got two meatball trucks now. And uh, I think it's just a matter of, you know, same thing, pivot. Like we were just talking about with the radio stuff with me. I think Matt was just looking at this thing going – Hey, uh, the meatball truck's going great. Antonettas is a struggle. I need to switch things here. And they originally had closed Antonettas for a little while, remember? And then, you know, the pandemic hit, and that probably hurt Antonettas even more. And I would just guess that meatball truck was going so well that they just eventually looked at the whole business model and said, hey, this is we're in the food truck business now, not the restaurant business. That's my guess, at least. Um, Ronald Cooper, the best meal you ever had and why? The company, the food, the music, the occasion, or something else. 16 years old, Italy, exchange student, first couple months living in Italy. We go down by the sea, my host father, my host brother, and my host mother, and I'm 16 years old, and uh, I didn't like fish up until this moment. This was the moment I ate fish for the first time and liked them. But when I was a kid, every once in a while, the idea of eating fish would come up and I would be like, bleh, bleh, I don't want fish. Well, they bring me down to a restaurant on the water. It's a beautiful day. I'm in Italy. I'm living like the dream, right? And uh, they order me zuppa di pesce, uh, fish stew, basically. And it comes and it's this giant bowl of fish pieces and I remember looking down at it and seeing just chunks of fish and for a split second being grossed out by it 
And then looking around at my atmosphere and realizing, look, I'm in Italy. I'm at a cool little seaside restaurant. The, the, the natural cuisine of this area I'm in is fish because I'm on an island. I'm on the island of Sardinia. I got to just try this. And I took a bite and my life changed. And, and now, to this day, if you ask me what my favorite meal is, I'm going to tell you pasta, you know, traditional pasta, meatball, sausage, etc., and zuppa di pesce. Uh, sibling for Leo in the near future. Question from Jackie Flood. I will tell you, Jackie, that uh, the countdown is not on yet. However, somebody in my house will call her the decision maker of my house has recently started to admit to people that she's having baby fever. So we'll see where that's going. Uh, Scott Kent says, time for a sausage party podcast. Ronald Cooper, one of mine, going, oh, is a couple people telling stories about Red Osier. Yes, the interview with Red is coming up. Let me pound through a few more questions here. Dan uh, Birnbaum says, if you had a party in the 90s and a five-disc CD changer, what CDs would you put in there to set the mood? Oh, I love this question. Okay. Vanilla Ice, I don't remember the name of the album. Uh, Bone Thugs and Harmony, East 1999 Eternal. Uh, Let's go with Destiny's Child first album, the one that had um, No, No, No on it with Wyclef Jean. Oh, God, what else do we put on there? Probably Michael Jackson and um, probably Nirvana. The uh, Nirvana, uh, uh, the album that had Come As You Are on it. And, oh, God, people are going to kill me for not knowing the name of that album. Um, Smells Like Teen Spirit. You know, the big hit Nirvana album, definitely. Kevin Andrew, what was your best memory of your dad? And on our Father's Day, and now that you are a dad. Oh, going to Indians games with my dad is the best memory. Going to Indians games with my dad was the best. He was a huge Indians fan, is still to this day. And I loved going to Indians games with him. And actually, my best memories actually go up to maybe my worst memory with my dad, which was this one time when I was like 12 or 13 years old. And I have a little brother who's five years younger than me. My dad always brought me to Indians games. And then this one time when I was like 12, I was just being a snot the whole time like I just didn't want to be there and it really just kind of ruined his experience and the next time that he had tickets for an Indians game he brought my brother instead of me and that just broke my heart and still does to this day because I loved going to those games with him and I went to plenty more with him afterwards and honestly that scarred me so much that I ended up buying him season tickets last year when he retired you know just to kind of like make up for that one time when I was 12 and I was a snot at the game. Kathy Singer says, expanding distribution of Little Meatball, is it a hit? Kathy, I'm not going to lie to you. Not a hit. Little Meatball kind of kind of little bit of a, um, a setback. Now, part of it was we didn't get into Wegmans with it for whatever reason, and that's usually the difference between a hit and a non-hit. As soon as it gets into Wegmans, starts doing big numbers, and then word of mouth happens, and you're off to the races. But um, we're still making it. It's it's slower than most of the other sauces. Uh, I'm proud we did it. I'm happy we did it. I don't, I'm not going to say we'll never do it in the future. I think maybe I made a mistake with it. I think trying to make a healthy version of SpaghettiOs might have been a mistake. I think I underestimated how many parents don't care that it's healthy. They just want their kid to love it. And because ours had no sugar, no salt, um, no, I should say no added sugar, no added salt, because of that, it was... Um, you know, it probably wasn't as good as SpaghettiOs, quite frankly. And so I think that, uh, you know, kids probably ate it and thought it was okay and then said, I like SpaghettiOs better and, you know, I'll have to rework it. 
Dean says, uh, would you tell us a little bit about how you and Ryan are handling a new business with a 20-month-old at home? Because that, I really want to know how you two decide to have your own manufacturing plant. So proud of both of you. Um, well, I talked a lot about how the whole thing came to be in episode one. So you can go back and listen to that, Dean, uh, a.k.a. Bert, if you really want to know how the whole thing came to be. But uh, the time management thing has been a, an issue. Someone else asked about time management, too. I thought for sure that I had a busy life before I made this move. Uh, owning and running a production facility is a whole nother level of commitment. I mean, the time management has become a real struggle to where I have, I've been there till 10 o'clock at night a few times and that's no good, no good for the family life. My wife's been understanding a couple of those times, but for the most part, I need to, I need to get home for dinner, you know, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not making it home for dinner a lot. And that's a big, big problem that I have to fix right away. I, I've been, and I don't want you to think I'm never home for dinner. I've been getting home for dinner maybe, maybe 75% of the time. So I'm, I'm home for dinner a lot, but I, the idea that I would ever not be home for dinner, I think is unacceptable. And I think once in a great while, you know, shit happens. But for the most part, I, I got to get that in line. Dave Migliori asks a mean question, says, why is the Weez show so bad? Why is Weez hiding down in Florida? I don't think Weez is hiding in Florida. I think Weez has been extremely successful in his career, has earned the right to broadcast from Florida, and is taking advantage of the right that he has earned. I don't blame him at all for that. Uh, why is the Weez show so bad? That's your opinion, dude. That's your opinion. Here's the thing. that For all entertainment and all media, you're going to find somebody who loves it, somebody that hates it. Are there people that hate the Weez show? Sure. Are there people who love the Weez show? Sure. You're going to find those people for everything. There's people probably love this podcast. There's people probably hate this podcast. There's people probably don't even know this podcast exists. In fact, that's most people. Clay Killian says, what is your favorite thing about beer? I honestly just love the fact that what has happened with the craft beer movement over the last few years that I just keep getting thrown new options. And that's a that is maybe a detriment of my generation is that we are not loyal to anything you know the ipa broke through for beer and got to a whole new generation of beer drinkers became a craft beer movement but i love sours right now before i loved sours i was really into hazy ipas and you know they just keep on coming out with new things that i can just fall in love with and drink just that for a few months and i think that's what i love about the current beer movement is just constant innovation and invention and unfortunately it's hurting because some breweries, you know, you're the new hot brewery for like two minutes. But I will tell you this. I think the beer, I spilled coffee on myself just now. Ugh. It's all right. I'm going to mow the lawn a little after eight o'clock. You don't even know what time it is. Six. Oh, it's six. Okay. We got to wrap up the Q&A part of this in a little bit. Uh, what, what was I saying? Oh, beer. The thing about beer is. Uh, at the beginning, I started to get worried about breweries because more and more breweries kept popping up. And the cool thing about a brewery for a while was that it was the new brewery. That was for a couple of years. Well, that can only stay cool for so long. Eventually, there's too many new breweries. And so what happens is the good breweries that can keep to, keep on innovating and coming out with cool new things over and over and over, those will be the successful breweries. I've loved watching that happen within the beer world, watching breweries come up with uh, new and in exciting things and really seeing brewmasters talent exposed for good or bad some have actually been exposed for bad some guys just weren't that talented but some guys have really risen to the top and been great absolutely um 
let's see what else moving on to the next page i want to try and get through all these in the next couple minutes uh i'll try and go fast here just to get through all right um part-time dj i've been doing it for over 20 years a hobby as a teenager turned into a part-time gig no matter if the weather sucks or the food is awful people dancing and enjoying themselves is a big deal and a lot of pressure at a wedding you should interview a dj i would love to hit me up trenton i'll have you on uh, somebody says, so when iHeart let Billy go, did you feel guilty knowing you were probably leaving or did you not know you were leaving yet? Yes and yes. I felt very guilty because I knew I was just, I was on the brink of leaving. And I would say the decision to leave for me became official, official right after Billy was like, oh, because remember Billy was like, oh, in those layoffs. And I, I'm telling you the layoffs happened on a Tuesday. My whole deal that I was just telling you about where I was sort of forced into doing a job I didn't want to do was was all became very clear by like Thursday. And I'm telling you, by the end of the day, that Thursday, I knew for sure I was gone. And it, I wished I could roll back the time, the clock three days and uh, and and yeah, and give my job to Billy. A hundred percent. I felt very guilty about that. I feel tremendous debt to Billy. Um, Billy's a great guy. And and yeah, I just fuck. I gotta live with that forever, and that sucks. That sucks because I do feel that guilt. <sighs> I do. Um, Joe Kupperberg says, "I'll give it a shot." We know your love of food and pro wrestling. How about an interview with good old Jim Ross about barbecue? I would love to. Kidding me? I'd have Jim Ross on in a second. Uh, another question about time management. I already answered that. Do you regret leaving radio? I already mentioned that. What's been the hardest part about the new job? Um, oh. The hardest part about the new job is definitely the fact that when you are the boss, problems filter up. And so I remember one time years ago asking a guy what it's like to be the boss, right? What What's the job of manager? like? What's the actual day-to-day? Because te- typically, whatever a business does, you know, if you have a business where you, I don't know, make... Uh, <laughs> paper i don't know i just the first thing i guess i've been watching a lot of the office lately if you have a job where you make paper if you're the ceo of the business that makes paper your actual day-to-day job is not making paper when you're the ceo of a sauce company a pasta sauce company you're not actually spending a lot of time physically stirring pots of sauce right you're you're working on your business not at your business that's a big thing about being a boss well here's the thing this is one thing where i've definitely learned this and this is not something that I thought was going to be as prevalent as it was in terms of negatives of being the boss. Positives of being the boss are wonderful. Don't get me wrong. The positives of being the boss are full control over the company's trajectory, the ability to pivot when you want to pivot, um, et cetera, et cetera. The negatives are problems, they flow upwards. So any issues whatsoever, think about it. When you're an employee and you have an issue, what do you do? You tell your boss. And your boss has to handle it now, right? Well, things filter their way up and problems end up on the desks of the boss. And so I would say the thing that has been the hardest part about the new job has been the amount of time I spend every day just putting out fires. And they're tiny. I don't want you to think like the place is not burning down. But fires need to be put out constantly, whether it's, hey, we're out of cinnamon or, hey, so-and-so just changed their order that we're all dialed in for that's supposed to be happening at 2 o'clock this afternoon. They've just sent us a whole new revision on what they want us to do, and we were prepared to run that job at 2 o'clock, and now we've got to go back to the drawing board on it. You know, little fire, figuring out how to make those little adjustments every single day. You just want to come in and grow your business, and instead you come in and you've got this you know pile of things to do 
that you didn't think you were going to have to deal with today. I would say that's the hardest part about being the boss. You just want to come in and grow the business, and things constantly distract you away from that. Uh, and then the last one, and we'll cut this because I'm already 10 minutes over, biggest F-up ever in radio, biggest F-up so far in sauce. Biggest F-up ever in radio. Oh, God, I've had so many of them. Oh, God, biggest F-up in radio. I would say um, I'm going to go all the way back to college radio. I was doing uh, live call-in voting, and uh, you could call in, you could vote. I would play these two local songs, like local Cleveland artists, and then you could call in and vote as to who should go on to next week. And um, I remember one time somebody cursed, and I hit the delay button. And then I just kept taking live calls because I was like, well, what are the chances someone else is going to curse? And the very next call, the guy said something just terrible. <laughs> like, he just said something like, you know, I was like, this fucking sucks. I fucking hate this. You know, something like that. And uh, and it just aired. <laughs> like, it just aired. So that was definitely my biggest F up in radio. Biggest F up so far in the sauce business. Uh, probably the time that I spilled five gallons worth of sauce on Buffalo Road in, um, I think it was North Chile. I had just delivered some sauce to Food Town in North Chile, and I was short a case on the order, and I was so pissed off at myself because I had just, you know, I, I basically, I needed to go get this one more case of sauce and then come all the way back to North Chile, and I had just miscounted. I had been in a hurry, and I was mad at myself because I had miscounted, and now it was going to cost me time. And so I basically uh, didn't, properly closed my trunk because I was mad so I like slammed my trunk which meant meant that it remained ajar and then as I like peeled out of the parking lot and I didn't really peel out but you know as I angrily leave the parking lot the trunk flies open and a giant five gallon pail of sauce goes right in the middle of the street and spills everywhere and then I'm out cleaning it in the middle of traffic with blankets and whatever the hell I had in my car and it was just a nightmare just a nightmare anyway let me shut up now Let's get to the uh, let's get to the interview with Red Osier. When I took over the business, one of the big clients that we have that was an existing client, the business before me was Red Osier, the legendary prime rib roast beef, whatever you want to call it, restaurant. And uh, Red himself wanted to come in and meet me, wanted to meet the new owner. And when he came in, I just loved the guy. You know, he was just classic. He was he was the Red Osier. He's the guy they call Red of Red Osier. And so I was like, this is amazing. Sir, I have my microphones in my car. Can I go get them and do a quick interview with you? Because I don't think you get to meet Red Osier every day, right? And so this is it, my interview with Red Osier. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I feel it's the middle of it's the middle of the day, and I'm supposed to be working right now. 
But I'm doing this podcast as a hobby, and I thought, you know what? Occasionally, I'm going to have the advantage. I'm going to have people walking in here who are somewhat celebrities, food celebrities, that every once in a while, this is why I keep all my podcast equipment here at work, because uh, we're recording this at the new site of Permac Enterprises, 7100 Apple Tree Avenue, Bergen, New York. Uh, this is why I keep all my recording out here, just in case a celebrity walks in, like this guy right here. I am sitting across from the Red Osier. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to talk to you, Bob. Thanks, Paul. Very nice to be here with you. And your new facility here is just gorgeous. What do you think? Oh, wow. What a great yeah. upgrade, and I wish you a lot of success. Well, thanks. I appreciate I'm sure it. you'll have it. Well, it's, it's great to meet you. So you are Bob. What's your what's your actual last name? Uh, my name is Bob Moore. I'll just give you a very quick story. Sure. When we bought the Red Osier, Jimmy Carter was president. Uh-huh. <laughs> And the Red Osher was just about out of business. Uh, it was in the same family for years, and they had just gotten old, and they didn't put enough time into it, and it was run down. Well, we bought it, and we were going to change the name because Red Osher, to us, we never heard of it before, mm -hmm. and it seemed a little odd. Well, a local person that we met said, you know, the name is unique. Why don't you keep that name? Maybe add something to it. So my wife came up with the idea, well, let's call it Red Osier Landmark Restaurant. So that's what we did. But over the years, people would say, they thought it was Red Osier's landmark. So they would say to me when I, I worked the front end for years, are you Red Osier? Well, no, I'd say, no, I'm Bob Moore, but with the Red Osier and so on. It's a tree that grows out here in the country and so on. So finally I said, why should I fight it? So I said, yeah, I'm Red Osier. There you go. So now for years and years, everyone calls me Red or Red Osier. My kids, my wife, they all they call did. me yeah, Red. Your, your son told me, he goes, yeah. hey, you got to talk to Red. I go, hey, get him out of here. Let's yeah. talk to Red. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so then what is the origin story of Red Osier, the restaurant itself? Who was the founder well, of Red Well, I'll tell you, the Red Osier originally opened in 1939. The Whitlock family were farmers, and they owned Red Osier Farms, and they raised Guernsey cows. Now, we don't see Guernsey cows anymore because they are a low-production, wonderful milk, but low-production. And that was just coming out of the Depression, and Howard Johnson's did very well during the Depression. And Mr. Whitlock wanted to put up a store like Howard Johnson's. He had the cows, he had the area, so he, he built the Red Osher out of Fieldstone from his own farm. And the, they operated for a number of years, uh, and then the war came, and they closed right down because of gas uh, rationing. After that, uh, the minute the war ended in 45, they opened back up again, and unfortunately, uh, Mr. Whitlock uh, became ill and he died. And in 1952, the, his wife, who ran it after he died, sold it to the people who own Jell-O. The people that own Jell-O? Yes. Isn't Jell-O like a local yes. discovery uh, as well? Yes. Jello. Hold that mic just a little closer. Okay. Uh, Jello was formed uh, in 1896, 
and uh, it, they they ran. It was the um, Woodward family, and they ran it for years, and they sold out in the 30s to what is now General Foods, and oh. Leroy was famous right. for Jello. I golfed in Leroy yeah. once, and the guy that I was golfing with said, "You know, Jello was created." Here. Yes, and yes. I go, I go, shut up. Oh yeah, because I'm not. I'm from Ohio, right? Yeah. I didn't know that. And, and he goes, "Yeah, no, Jello's from oh, Leroy, no. New York." Yes. And I was like, yeah. what? Yeah, never even knew that. Blows my mind. So yeah. the family that that created Jello ended up owning Red Ocean yes, for a while. Yes, right. That was the uh, second or third wife of the son of the original people. And she was in her 80s, and uh, the restaurant was in trouble, and she had to sell it. And G.I. came along. I was a banker. I worked for Chemical Bank in New York. And I was looking to just uh, uh, do my own thing. I was close to 40 years old. As I say, Jimmy Carter was president. And, uh, boy, we had more guts than brains. Well, but, I was going to say, bring me back to this moment. Oh, so you were a successful banker, right? Oh, yes, you I was. You had a nice career oh, going. I had a great You could have done that forever, right? Yes, yeah. no question. And you were in New York City? Uh, no, I oh. was in the Rochester market. Oh, okay. Spent a lot of time in New York City. But I worked here in the, uh, I was chief loan officer for the bank uh, in Rochester. And, uh, you know, I just thought, you know, because I had had a lot of, of small business experience. I built the first automatic car wash in Rochester in the 60s. Really? What one was that? It was called a Robo Wash, and it was in Greece at Ridge and Fetzner Road. And uh, our family ran it for eight and a half years. And uh, I uh, had a donut. uh, Well, first of all, our family owned Bell's Markets. We had two Bell's Markets in Greece. And then I went into the car wash business, and then I went into the donut and ice cream business. So I had a lot of small business experience. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in about 1970, I decided to make a career change, and I went into the bank. I was 30 years old. And so I had a great career. I started with Security Trust Company, then I moved to Chemical Bank and had a great career. But I still longed to go into my own business. So I started looking around and stumbled on the Red Osier. How did you first hear that Red Osier was maybe for sale? Well, I had hired a real estate man to look for various, oh, you wouldn't believe the different businesses that I had looked at because in my career at the bank, as a commercial loan officer, I did business with all kinds of businesses. And I thought, you know, I could run any of them. It's a numbers game. Know your numbers. And, and uh, you know, you can basically, unless something is a real highly technical thing that you'd have to run. But uh, so I started looking, hired a real, and he called me one day and he said, have you ever heard of the Red Osier restaurant? In Leroy, it's right outside of Leroy. No, I never heard of it. Well, one Monday afternoon, I said, well, at the bank, I'm going to lunch. And I drove out, and I took a look at it. It's a beautiful building. What did you order? Uh, While they were closed, it was on a Monday. And we've always been closed on Monday. Mm -hmm. We were for all those years. And it was a funny thing. I drove around the parking lot, and it was, you know, it's a beautiful building, but you could tell the place was run down a little bit. It hadn't been kept up, and 
geez, I got out of the car and I opened the front door and they had left the front door open. (laughs) I'll never forget. And I walked in there and walked all around. Went and I am, of course, in those days, just long before cell phones, but they had a telephone booth right outside. And I got right on the phone and called my wife and said, Noreen, my wife's name is Noreen, I said, I think I found the place. I think you're going to like this. It's a restaurant, but we can run a restaurant. Were you living in Rochester at the yeah, time? Yeah, we live so we you live have in to Greece. commute. Leroy is, it's yeah. not the worst commute in the world, yeah. but it's also not, you yeah. know, it's not like you're two minutes from work either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was about a 35, 40-minute uh-huh. drive. Uh-huh. Uh, but what we did is we sold our home in Greece right away, uh-huh. and we moved right up overhead. Uh, my Above old, the restaurant? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was an old banquet hall. And it hadn't been used for years. And uh, my in-laws, God bless them, uh, they, they, uh, they were both retired. And they went in and cleaned up the upstairs for us. In the meantime, my wife put our, sa- our home for sale in Greece. And we sold it. The apartment was done. And all th- four of us moved in. Wonderful. Yeah, Rob was uh, 12. Michael was 3. And Noreen and I, and we were, we were upstairs for three or four years. And, uh, oh, we got that baby up and running. So how many dinners a week were you eating Red Ozier food while oh, you lived there? Well, when was it we, every night? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Listen, I was a thin guy when I bought the place. And uh, since then, I've gained probably 70 pounds. They say never trust a skinny yes, chef. No, no, I agree with that. In fact, on my dessert menu, which we'd hand out after the dinner, and said, it had a picture of a chef, portly type, and it said, never trust a skinny chef. Here's our dessert menu. So, uh, But anyway, we, we stumbled on the prime rib business, well, I was going to ask you that. What was Red Osier doing prior to you taking over? What was the menu? Well, let me say this. They started off, chicken pot pie was their main item for years. Interesting. Yeah, and it was the best chicken pot pie you'd ever eat. It was wonderful. And they also had an item, cream cod, hmm. cream cod over baked potatoes. Years ago, that was a popular item. Interesting. I don't yeah, think I've and, ever yeah, had it. Now, that sounds good. It wouldn't be something I don't think you'd like. Mm. But it was popular, and we kept them on the menu. And then I knew that we needed a theme in order to make this place go. Because Stafford, New York, I mean, it would be, how do you get there from here? Right. Or can you get there from here? <laughs> right, right. And uh, so, uh, anyway... Uh, someone mentioned to us after I was there at the restaurant, maybe six months, have you ever been to the Canisius Inn? Well, with a young family, we knew they were very popular, and we um, we had never been there, but we heard it was wonderful. Well, my wife and I went there, and we were just astounded and couldn't believe the business at that time there was no more uh, popular restaurant than the Canisius and they were the number one and they should have been it was a wonderful place they only served two or three items prime rib and king crab and lobster tail that was it but what a business they did so I made a study out of that and I said wow 
prime rib is a very difficult item to make money with because of the waste factor. So, but we studied it and uh, we decided to go into the prime rib business and we wanted to do a little different twist, carved table side. That was what made us different from the beginning. You were going to so, go to the table, yep. you're going to carve it right there for We him. had a local man wow. in uh, Leroy make our carts, heated carts. And at the time we had two, I was the first, we called our rib carvers prime ministers. And I was the first one, I'll never forget, in February of 81, I, the cart went on the floor for the first time. And... Uh, from then on, it just went like this. People we had loved a, it. We had a great run. We had yeah. a great... Then we went into, over the years, we we went into a table-side service with a lot of things. We had Banana Foster that was a real showstopper. We did Caesar salads, table-side. And then uh, it got... Oh, then... Uh, did any? Did you ever try anything that didn't work? <coughs> Any, any, you know, sometimes, you know, you're, just, you're taking a lot, you're swinging at a lot of pitches. Did you ever swing? Oh, and miss yeah. On oh, we missed on, we, we missed on a lot of things. Closer, yeah, yeah, we, we, we missed on quite a few things. You try different things. You try. Yeah. yeah. Nobody's going to be Yeah. Out. And, uh, but right from the time we uh, went into the prime rib business, especially carve table side, nobody had done that. Now you have uh, Lowry's Prime Rib is a big one. Uh, they're in Chicago, and they've got four or five locations. We had been there and seen that, and I had that in the back of my mind. But I knew that being out in Stafford, New York, unless we had something unique that no one else had, uh, it was going to be a tough struggle to bring it around. Mm-hmm. So we picked out those items, and we had... Uh, for an example, we had what we advertised the world's largest shrimp cocktail. We would import shrimp from Ecuador and Peru. They were called pink shrimp, the quality, top quality. And we tried the, we just captured the market with that. We we would do that table side. We would take a cart, would load it with shrimp to the table. You'd pick out the shrimp you wanted. So we needed to be unique, and that's what made us. And, of course, we had top quality. The, everything we served was the best that you could buy. And it worked for us, and the prices were reasonable. Mm-hmm. The nice thing. Did, you, did it work? Did you know right off the bat that you you were going to have success there because because right the previous owner was on the brink of failure yeah, right right and so i would imagine on day one you probably had to pick up where she left off yeah. right you had to build yeah right did, when how long did it take for you to realize we're going to be successful here well it didn't take long because once we realized that we had to have a theme something different and then the wheels started turning in my mind how we could make it and we went from we then we thought you know table side service is going to be the key to it because no one does that type of thing or very few places do it and uh the prime rib was the thing that did it because not that many restaurants handle prime rib it's a very expensive and unless you're open for lunches and you can take the prime rib that you served yesterday, what's left over, 
thinly slice it and have it as a hot prime rib, the waste is tremendous. Well, we had no waste because we developed other items. We had our number one soup was prime rib and mushroom soup. Well, couldn't make enough of it. Mm -hmm. So we were very fortunate. And once we got that baby up and running, for out of the 37 years, for I would have to say 20, probably 30 to 32 years, we served 500 people on a Saturday night. And we turned away 100 to 300 people every Saturday night. We couldn't serve any more than 500. Wow. So we had a we had a we had a great run. And uh, I oh I love the business. I never got up any morning and say I got to go to work mm -hmm. uh, because I enjoyed it. And uh, you know we had a wonderful staff. Oh my man who was with me 37 years. We are still very close to him. His name is Eric Burdett, and I hired him when he was um, um, 19 years old, and I think now he's 59 years old. And just a oh, wonderful, loyal. He comes to the lake every year when we put our dock in, and he's been putting the canopy on my, uh, on my boat uh, lift for 30 years. He was just down the house last week. And uh, so we still have a wonderful relationship, and we have a lot of people like that. His mother was my head bartender. She was there th 35 years. And uh, other people, just wonderful staff. Um, when did, we Did you ever consider franchising? I mean, Yeah, we did. Yeah, we looked into it. First of all, in order to franchise, and we talked to franchise people, we had them come in. We had, you had to have multiple operations successful. You had to have at least three stores that were successful to use that as an example to go. So we'd look to expand, uh, but uh, it never happened. Uh, we looked at various operations and thought to ourselves, you know, let's stay where we are. Let's make it bigger because when we bought it, uh, it's it seated approximately 125 people, and we put a big addition on. And when we left, we were seating, I think, 225 or 230 people. So uh, we decided to take that route. We stayed right there. We lived right in the neighborhood, and then we bought our home on Canisius. We've been there 30 years, but we just use it for our summer home. And then uh, when... Michael, my youngest one, who uh, was at the restaurant for, well, he was three when we bought it, and he was, uh, let's see, he's 44 now, so he was about 38 years old when he left. He had just had enough, wanted to make a change, and uh, that's what made me decide to sell. So your son was around, and, and there was probably the idea that he would take over, right? Exactly. That, that was the we, idea. And then he just said, I'm not uh, interested I've anymore. I've had enough of it. And right now he runs a very successful uh, lawn mowing and landscaping business. Mm -hmm. So he's happy doing what he's doing. And uh, we sold it to a long-term employee and his partner. Okay. And uh, he worked the uh, young man who we sold it to was not even born when we bought the Red Osher. <laughs> so right now he's maybe 43. Was it a difficult decision for you to sell it? Because that was your baby, right? Yeah, I mean, right. Was your... It was difficult. Yeah. But I was having health problems. And, mm. 
and I uh, had open heart surgery and the three bypasses and the valve and I had started to go down. I was about 75 years old then. And so, no, we decided and I thought, well, if something happens to me, I wouldn't want to leave it to my wife to run alone because we were a team, a great team. She ran the upstairs. She was a great organizer. Oh, systems and procedures, she developed them. They're still using them to this day, right. things she developed. My job was to fill seats, and that's what I did. And so we had, we were a great team, and we still are a great team. We're married 57 years this year. Uh, and uh, that's what the, 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 the idea of having a team and everyone having a role. It's I just want to get your advice for a second because we're sitting outside of my new, relatively new business, so an existing business. Sure, sure. But that that's the thing that I'm really realizing and hoping to yeah. make happen. Oh. So for your advice, is that the the right thing? So my job is to keep those kettles full, right? Oh, exactly. Keep, keep business. Oh, that's the key to it. And the, and these guys' job is to is to make sure that everything is happening exactly the way it's supposed to happen. See, quality control is so yeah. important in your business, like it is, like it was in ours. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm not a chef, I developed all the menu items, took them those ideas to the chefs, worked with them on how they were present them. What your job here is going to be the same thing. You've got such potential here uh, to build this business mm -hmm. and then your inside people are the ones the quality we were always good to our employees it was like a family type business we when we bought the place we had eight employees we had 70 when we left mostly part-time uh, but uh, a great family uh, operation I knew their children and how many kids they had when they came in to pick up their checks on Friday the kids would love come because we'd give them ice cream sundaes and treat it was a family type we ran a tough operation now uh, we were wonderful to people and fair but we were tough you don't run a business like that for 37 years without systems and procedures. And when you say tough, you tough. mean you've got a system, you've got a procedure, yes. and, oh, if, yeah. and if somebody isn't following yeah. it, yeah. you got to get that in line. Well, I, let yeah. me give you a perfect example. Yeah, we, we got into a point where people weren't coming in on time. You were scheduled for 3 o'clock and mm. some 10 after, quarter after. Well, we finally lowered the boom and said, if you're doing at 3, you'd be here at 3 and punch in. I did the payroll every week. I had the time cards. So it was a thing like that. We we weren't nasty, but it was firm. And my wife was very firm Good. with her. So Great. it worked out worked out well. Just like your place here. Once you get familiar with this, to me, the sky's the limit. I hope so. Certainly you've hope got so. the personality, you can develop this business and there's a lot of private labels. Yeah. Items. Yeah, yeah there are. <laughs> and you might as well manufacture yeah. rather than somebody else. Well, right now that I know you, I feel like I've got, at least I've got a new mentor now. I can call you <laughs> well, thank you. Thank so, you. So let's talk about when you do sell the business. How hard is it to sell Red Osier? And, and even though it goes to a full-time employee, right? And didn't you have, and I don't know to what extent you do or don't want to talk about it, but didn't you retain the rights to do festivals or something? Oh, oh and, definitely. Yeah. See, the, uh, the, the business was really two separate businesses. My wife and I owned the Red Osier restaurant. Rob 
owns all the other Red Ocean. We have a licensing agreement with mm. him. Okay, got it. So he has the wholesale business, the Ajou business that you manufacture, mm. and the concessions, I and, a, okay. and a catering business. Okay, and that he didn't did. get sold. That stayed no, with Rob. No, that, that stayed with Rob. And since I retired and sold the business, I'm helping him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so just the restaurant is what got sold. Yes, right. Did right. you have to? Did you put? I mean, when you sold it, is it their business now, or did or did you say like, listen, you still got it? Prime rib still has to be your thing. No, oh, no. When we sold it, of course, we sold them all the recipes, and uh, all the everything that we did there, they bought, and it was part of the sale, mm. and especially the recipes. The prime rib was. It was prepared in a very unique way. We developed that over 37 years. I was going to ask, do you personally develop that, I personally developed it. How long did it take you from getting that prime ribbon that first time to get to the point where you said, yes, this is perfect? Yeah, probably probably a couple years. Oh, it took that long? Yes, yes. Just little tweaks here? We kept tweaks here and so on. And, uh, yeah, without any doubt, two years. And once we had it down, like the aging of beef, see, we never purchased any beef unless it was 30 days old age it aged by itself well, we didn't know that going into it originally we learned it and uh, just uh, the the uh, the au for an example see the au that you produce here for the other business that was my secret sauce that's what made the red osier famous i would cut you a piece of prime rib table side. Then I would have the au in a heated container and I would pour it over the prime rib after it was sliced. So we took that formula, that recipe, and that's what you produce for us here. Yes. So, yeah. uh, and then when my son went into the hot roast beef business, he used the au to dip the roast beef in. <laughs> so that's that's the secret there. So the au in my estimation, you've heard of McDonald's secret sauce. Mm. Well, the as you produce sauce. for us is our secret sauce. Yeah, you know, the first day that I was here that we made it, I took a little souffle cup of it and drank it. That's how good it is. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It's so. so good. Well, okay, so you just mentioned McDonald's. Let me bring up uh, another name. Let's talk about Arby's for a second. When did yeah. Arby's come around? Well, Arby's has been around, oh, probably, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they're around 40 or 50 years. Okay, all right. Uh, what's happened is Arby's is a wonderful beef, but it's much different. It's I don't know how they prepare it. There again is another secret formula for what. Uh, but we really don't compete with Arby's. It's really a, a, a different product. It's good. There's no question. And in the last several years, they have a new management team there where Arby's has taken a big step up and they produced a lot of, you know, their ad said, uh, we know the meats or we are the meats. We have the meats. We have the meats, right. And so they've come a long way. But we don't, their roast beef and ours is about as different as night and day. Okay, yeah. Yeah, they have a special way of preparing it, which I don't know how. Yeah, yeah. But it's good. You might have already given the answer to this next question throughout your entire explanation, but the secret to running a successful restaurant. Uh, is it that attention to detail, the systems, the processes? Oh, definitely, without, without Was, a question. Is that what it came down to? Yes. And, you know, the restaurant business is a dangerous business mm. because 
With us, it's all nights and weekends. The Red Osher was open for lunch for years, but we closed very soon after we bought it for lunch because we wanted to concentrate on the dinner business. We were open six nights a week, but you work every weekend. And you have, in my estimation, if you're a single operator like we were, one restaurant, you have to be there because people like to be recognized. Not only is it good food, but people dining out, it's more than just good food. It's an experience. They like the ambiance or they like your menu or they like the personnel that you have. See, we had very low turnover. I mean, people would come in and ask for a particular waiter or waitress uh, all the time. That was a request because they were there so long with us. And uh, our core of 15 people, uh, we had 70 employees totally, but our core of 15 accumulated 400 years with us. Wow, that is something to be proud yeah, of. Yeah, so, really? yeah, so it, it worked out very well. And uh, because of that key management, Noreen and I had a great life. Mm -hmm. We uh, we we traveled a lot, and uh, did you ever take did you ever take your foot off the gas until you sold? Were you still there every single day, or no, no? Because Michael, my son, had sure. became the manager, and right, he and I right. worked closely together. But as I got into my seventies, uh, then you know I would be there a lot, but I would try and go be home because my wife didn't work as many hours as I did in the last few years. And, you know, rather than me getting home at 10 or 11 o'clock every night, I was there on opening with Michael. He did the managing. He did the heavy-duty work. And I was there, as I said before, shaking hands and kissing <laughs> babies and, and communicating with the help because we we had a presence there for years. And uh, But Mike did it. He did a great job, and he just decided to change yeah, careers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Red, on a wonderful career. Thank you. Great run. I yeah. mean, Red Osier is iconic around here, and, thank and you. you're the reason for it. And, God, you are the Red Osier. Right? Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Very it's, good. It's well, great talking to you, Oh, Red. great talking Thanks to you. Thanks for sitting thank down you. doing this. I know we didn't plan on it, but I stole you for Yeah, wonderful. Well, I'm, we go. I'm very flattered that you think of the Red Osier the way you do. Oh, of course I do. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. I, I was telling, you know, I, I, I've been bragging about it since I started over at this place. You know, I talk about all the different brands we make, and yours, I mention yours every single time oh, yeah. because I want people to know, like, oh, no, we, we make that stuff. That's, yeah. That's Good. one we're proud of. So, Red, Good. anyway, thanks for doing this. Okay. We can wrap it up. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much.